0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Hinshaw to provide an update on COVID-19. The numbers we're sharing today are from Tuesday, April 19th to Monday, April 25th. Our teams at Alberta Health continue to closely monitor all available data from the province, including wastewater surveillance, PCR test positivity, and, of course, hospital admissions. I'm pleased to report that we continue to see signs of slowing transmission in Alberta, Over the past week, our average positivity rate is 25.7%. That's slower than most of the past month, and signals that we may be plateauing. Wastewater signals remain high at many sites, including Calgary, but some areas are seeing a decline or plateau over the past week. That includes Edmonton, Red Deer, Canmore, Banff, and Grand Prairie. Edmonton has seen high levels recently, but the level has dropped sharply in the past week. Now, it's too soon to know if it's a start of a sustained downward trend, but the signs are hopeful. And the surrounding communities in the Capital Region are seeing a much slower increase than in the initial Omicron wave. As is always the case, even if transmission is slowing as it appears to be, hospital emissions will continue to rise for a few weeks. Hospitalizations have risen by about 8% over the last week, while the number of people in intensive care has remained about the same. Overall, hospital admissions are up slightly, but are still in line with pre-COVID years. We're now about five weeks in the BA2-driven surge in transmission, and we can see that the impact is much less than the initial Omicron wave, especially when it comes to hospital admissions. Other provinces are experiencing a similar trend. In Ontario, for example, it appears that BA2 circulation has plateaued and begun to drop, With a much lower overall impact on admissions compared to the BA1 wave. This is a testament to the power of vaccines so I want to thank every Albertan who has been vaccinated and boosted against COVID. Your choice is helping to keep hospitalizations low and ensure that others can get the medical care and treatments that they need. While COVID admissions are not driving the same capacity challenges in previous waves our hospitals remain under significant pressures Several of our largest sites in Edmonton and in Calgary are over 100% occupancy and emergency departments and EMS are under real strain. Now, it's not new and it's not unique to Alberta. The reality is that two years of COVID-19 is straining health care services in every province, including here. If you just look at the numbers on paper, the fact is we've seen these kind of strains before. You'll, you can look at the data from five years ago under the previous government, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. The reality is that hospitals in Canada historically run at 90% occupancy and higher, especially in the big cities, and at peak times they run over 100%. What we have not seen before is two years of continuous pressure and stress on the workforce from the pandemic, including those workers who are sick with COVID. So we need to add capacity. We need to get through the current surge of COVID cases, but we also need to do more than just get back to normal. The normal capacity we had before the pandemic was not good enough and we need to do better. We need to add capacity so the system is not under so much strain even when we're not in a pandemic. And we're doing that. We're adding capacity across our entire healthcare system from EMS right through to continuing care. For now, as we look at the current stage of cases from the BA2 sub-variant, we're watching what's happening in other countries, particularly those who've had Omicron longer than we've had it here. And we're seeing it's beginning to recede in countries like Denmark, the UK, South Africa, and in Ireland. That re- reinforces our expectation from our own data and from other provinces like Ontario that we're likely near peak in transmission and then in hospital admissions. But we're not there yet. COVID is still here. It remains a significant risk, particularly for unvaccinated people, which is why we continue to make vaccines readily available across our entire province. When it comes to vaccination, over the last month, we've made fourth doses for more Albertans most at risk for severe outcomes. And I'm pleased to see that the uptake is increasing, with more than 21,000 fourth doses administered over the last week. AHS is working with operators To get doses to residents and long-term care and designated supported living facilities. If you or a loved one are eligible for a fourth dose and it's been at least five months since your third one, please book an appointment today. In addition to vaccines which provide the best protection against COVID-19, we're working to make treatments such as Paxlovid more broadly accessible. As supply has increased, we've expanded eligibility so more Albertans can benefit from this treatment, And made it accessible to more pharmacies. We're also working towards making it more broadly available by prescription like other medications. Work is underway to transition the prescribing process to primary care. Family physicians are getting tools and education to ensure they're comfortable prescribing this medication and I hope to announce very soon that prescribing will be fully transferred to them. Early uptake of this treatment has been limited in Alberta and across Canada generally. However, thanks to increased access and awareness over the last few weeks, about 1,300 prescriptions have now been administered. That's nearly double where we were just two weeks ago. I know there are Albertans who are not currently eligible who are keen to access this drug, but just a reminder, Paxlovid is subject to specific criteria for access because it's a complex drug with many potential contraindications and drug interactions. It's appropriate for only for a certain defined group of patients, and even within that group, it may or may not be appropriate for a given patient. The core clinical criteria are common to all provinces, and they're based on the best available evidence. We'll continue to monitor the evidence and adjust if and as appropriate. Given the evidence and expert advice as of today, we want Albertans who may benefit from Paxlovid to know about it and access it if it's appropriate for them. If you or someone you know may be eligible, please call HealthLink as soon as symptoms develop. And please continue to take precautions best suited to your unique situation and risk factors and what's best for your family and loved ones while the virus remains high in our communities. And if you're in a setting with measures in place to protect vulnerable people, do the right thing, respect and follow the rules. If you're going to a hospital, visiting a continued care facility or taking public transit, wear a mask. Be prepared to wear a mask at your doctor's office and other health settings to keep those locations safe for everyone. And if you tested positive or have symptoms stay home and isolate away from others. These simple acts have and will continue to help slow transmission in the province and turn our cautious optimism into a reality. So thank you again for all Albertans are doing to be able to protect themselves and each other And once again, thank you to our healthcare workers who are working through these very challenging times. And with that, I now invite Dr. Hinshaw to the podium.
1: Thank you, Minister, and good afternoon, everyone. Before I speak about COVID today, I want to address some questions we've been getting about cases of severe hepatitis or liver inflammation in children that have been reported in several countries around the world. What we know right now is that roughly 170 cases of sudden liver inflammation. In children aged 16 and under have been reported globally, mostly in European countries and the United States. While this is a small number, unfortunately about 17 of these cases have gone on to need a liver transplant and sadly one has died. There are many causes for hepatitis but in these cases the most common causes have been ruled out and it is not clear what led to the condition. There have been no confirmed cases in Alberta to date and we are working to provide information to frontline physicians on this topic. There is a great deal of work being done on this globally and some cases have had an adenovirus, which is a common cold virus, identified. It is not clear if this virus is causing the hepatitis, but it is one possible cause that is being explored. For parents in Alberta who may be worried about this, I want to underline the point that this is a very rare condition, with only about 170 cases identified worldwide. If there is an infectious cause of this syndrome, the same things we have been doing as parents over the last two years will still be valuable now, such as reminding our kids to clean their hands regularly and continuing to support the important practice of encouraging everyone in our circles to stay home when feeling sick. Using masks in public places is an option for families who wish to add an extra layer of protection. We're working closely with federal, provincial, and territorial partners to monitor emerging information, and we'll keep Albertans informed of any developments. For today's COVID update, between Tuesday, April 19th to Monday, April 25th, our PCR test positivity ranged from 234 to 30.6%, with an average of 25.7% for the week. This is stable from the previous week. As the Minister mentioned, hospitalizations have increased slightly. Currently, there are 1,220 people with COVID-19 in hospital, including 47 in the ICU. Sadly, between April 19th and April 25th, an average of 9 deaths per day related to COVID-19 were reported to Alberta Health. By comparison, U.S. data estimates that prior to COVID, there was an average of one death per day per two million people for influenza and RSV combined, which would work out to about two to three deaths per day in Alberta on average. Clearly, COVID is still something we need to be very mindful of. The individuals whose deaths were reported in the last week were between the ages of 32 and 103. My deepest sympathies are with their loved ones and anyone in Alberta who has lost someone they cared about, no matter the cause. As COVID continues to circulate in our communities, and some Albertans continue to experience severe outcomes, I want to review the options available to help Albertans prevent serious outcomes and treat COVID-19 infections. Vaccination remains the single most effective tool we have to reduce the risk of experiencing severe illness – hospitalization, and death. Even against the BA2 variant, vaccines are effective at preventing these worst-case scenarios. That is why we continue to urge Albertans to get every dose they're eligible for. As the Minister has mentioned, this in- also includes fourth doses for all Albertans age 70 and older, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people age 65 and older, all residents in seniors, congregate care facilities, and those with serious immunocompromising conditions, as long as a minimum of five months have passed since their third dose. While on the topic of vaccines, I would like to advise Albertans that after this week, AstraZeneca products will no longer be available in Canada with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. Several other vaccine options exist, including Moderna and Pfizer, which are the preferred options and of which Alberta has ample supply. In addition, Alberta also continues to have some Janssen and Novavax vaccines available for those who may need or prefer a non-mRNA vaccine. While I continue to stress the importance of receiving a full series of vaccine, as the Minister mentioned, we are also working to improve access to Paxlovid for those who can benefit from it most. We have had a lot of questions about the eligibility for this prescription oral antiviral treatment That can help reduce the risk of severe disease in some individuals it is important to remember that determining who can benefit most from this medication depends on who is most at risk of severe outcomes right now with any medication including paxlovid it is important to consider what benefit a medication can provide and also what the potential side effects are for someone at high risk of severe outcomes such as an older person with no vaccine protection, the benefit of early treatment in reducing the risk of severe outcomes is large, balancing out the risk of side effects for most people in this group. For someone with a lower risk of severe outcomes, such as someone with a full series of vaccine plus all boosters they are eligible for, the benefit of Paxlovid is less, since they have a lower risk to begin with. This is true for most people even if they have a condition like diabetes because vaccines still provide good protection against severe outcomes. This means the side effects from Paxlovid may be worse for them than the COVID risk. There's also been some confusion about the difference between immunocompromising conditions and chronic conditions, so I want to address that as well. People who have immunocompromising conditions, like being on cancer treatment, or post-transplant medications that stop the immune system from working fully still benefit significantly from vaccines, but not as much as those whose immune systems aren't being impacted by this kind of medication. This means that people in this category are eligible for this early treatment independent of how many vaccine doses they have had because their immune systems respond differently to vaccines than other people. I want to stress that vaccines are still important for this group, and at the same time, they can benefit more from Paxlovid than people who have a a condition like heart disease or diabetes and who are fully immunized. People living in long-term care or designated supportive living, regardless of vaccination status, may also benefit from oral antivirals, given their combination of older age and medical complexity. Another consideration in using antivirals like Paxlovid is how its use may lead to antiviral resistance. The more widely we use medications against viruses or bacteria, the greater the chance is that that particular tool will lose effectiveness in the long term, so using it in those who benefit most is also most likely to keep its usefulness intact for as long as possible. Oral antivirals also have many interactions with commonly prescribed medications, and physicians and pharmacists are well-positioned to support patients when considering whether this treatment is a good option for them. Albertans who have COVID-19 symptoms and meet the eligibility criteria listed at ahs.ca slash opt should book a test right away, as treatment should begin soon after the start of symptoms. If you test positive, please call the dedicated HealthLink line to be assessed for outpatient treatments such as Paxlovid. If you are eligible, you will be referred to a physician with the Outpatient Treatment Program who will determine what treatment will be of greatest benefit and either issue a prescription for Paxlovid or book an appointment for Remdesivir infusion. As of April 1st, all pharmacies can dispense Paxlovid if they choose to do so. Albertans can check the Alberta Blue Cross website to see which pharmacies in their area are dispensing Paxlovid and work with their prescriber to have the prescription sent there. All pharmacies have been reminded of their obligation to support patients and to refer them to other pharmacies if they are unable to dispense Paxlovid within the timelines necessary to start treatment. Paxlovid is an extra line of defence that can help some people with their COVID-19 infection, but we should not and cannot solely depend on it to get us through. As has been the case since day one with this virus, we need to use many different tactics to address COVID-19. What these are may differ depending on our comfort levels, risk tolerance, and personal risks, but being vaccinated with every dose we are eligible for, staying home when sick, and wearing masks in crowded indoor public spaces will all make a difference in helping to break the chains of transmission in our communities. Thank you, and we're happy to take questions.
2: Thanks, Dr. Hinshaw and Minister. Uh, no one in person here at the Federal Building in Edmonton, so we'll go straight to the phone. Uh, first caller, please. Brianna Karsten-Smith, Global News. Hi, my question is for Dr. Hinshaw, and I apologize. I just put some chips into my milk, so I will try to... Um,
1: I'm wondering about your reaction to the decision um, from a Calgary judge regarding um, your ability to claim cabinet confidence. With the ruling, I'm wondering if you can answer the
2: questions um, that Justice Romain laid out, including um, did the Premier and Cabinet ever direct you to impose more severe restrictions than recommended? Did they ever force you to impose more severe restrictions on certain groups? And did you ever recommend that restrictions should be eased only to have that advice ignored?
1: That's a matter that's still before the court, so I'm not able to comment on that at this time.
2: Thanks, Dr. Injah. Brianna, follow-up? Do you have any in general comment regarding the decision by Justice Romaine?
1: My understanding is that the legal team is looking at the decision, uh, but again, it's still before the court, so I just am not able to comment
2: further. Thanks, Dr. Injah. We'll go to the next caller. Thank you, Carly. uh, Robinson, City News. Hi, Dr. Hinshaw. Um, Both the Oilers and the Calgary Flames are in the playoffs, and it's the first time in years that they will have full crowds for the playoffs. I'm wondering what advice you have to both fans as well as stadiums with managing uh, the, the next few weeks of large crowds with the levels of COVID we have in our community.
1: It's an important question, and whether it's attending one of these games or whether it's uh, attending other events in our communities, it's really important to look at the information that's available online to determine what the current level of transmission is. So people can look at wastewater data for different communities that's available at the University of Calgary site, as well as a summary that's available on our government website Uh, You can look at the geographic weekly updates to just get a sense of what is transmission like at a given moment in time. We know right now that transmission, while plateauing, is still at a high level. And so it's really important for people who might be attending to consider what precautions would be appropriate for them, for their uh, risk factors. um, And, you know, again, trying to think through what uh, their exposure might be. And it's important for the people who are supporting the fans uh, to be considering that there may be people who have higher risk, who want to still attend. Um, And so if there uh, is an opportunity to be able to support those people, that would be very important to do so.
2: Thanks for that, Dr. Inchard. Uh, Carly, follow-up? yeah I'm just wondering dr hinshaw, if with the these large events because they are such big crowds, what your recommendation would be for for those steps individuals can take and and if you were to attend a game, what would be your thought process and what steps would you do take to keep yourself safe?
1: So maybe I'll start by steps to keep other people safe and say that if someone is feeling ill at all, if they're feeling like they have a uh sore throat, runny nose, a cough, they should absolutely not attend the game. And I think that's something that stadium owners or or those who are supporting the the people who are attending um, can consider what their processes might be. Uh, We do still have legal uh, isolation orders in place that require those who have respiratory illness to be at home and away from others so that would be one thing again that would be important to consider to minimize the chances that someone who is actively infectious would be attending then with respect to someone who's attending thinking about how to protect themselves uh, wearing the um, highest quality mask that they have certainly uh, in a large public space like that if if I were to attend I would want to be sure to wear a medical grade mask at minimum Um, And then just considering the environment and making sure that uh, people have perhaps hand sanitizer with them and and considering what their options are in terms of seating and if there's places where they might be able to watch the game a little bit further away from others. Um, So ultimately, it's all about multiple layers of protection. And there's no single intervention that will guarantee safety and uh, attending a game where there's many, many people present uh, or attending any event, uh, going to any kind of setting where there's many, many people present, there will always be some risk. And so it's a matter of of assessing that risk comfort, taking the precautions that are uh, appropriate for who that person is, um, and also really importantly, trying to reduce the risk for those around others by uh, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, staying home when sick.
2: Thanks, Dr. Hinshaw. We'll take the next question, please. Stephanie Thomas, CTV. Hello. My first question is for Dr. Hinshaw. In light of a new study from the University of Toronto that shows that the unvaccinated disproportionately pose a COVID risk to those who are vaccinated, what is your advice, Dr. Hinshaw, to vaccinated people for hanging out with those who are not vaccinated? particularly those who chose to be unvaccinated and not talking about children that are too young for the shot.
1: It's very clear that vaccines are the most powerful tool we have in our efforts to prevent COVID from, uh, overwhelming our acute care system from causing massive severe outcomes. So it's really important to emphasize that at the same time, um, At this point in time, we know that uh, those who have the protections of all the vaccines that they're eligible for have a reduced risk of severe outcomes themselves. And so I think that decision is really best left to individuals who are assessing how to move forward. This has been a very divisive time. And I think that uh, everyone in their families and friend groups is working out how do we move forward when we have differences of opinion on different topics. And so that's really something that people need to kind of weigh out how they're going to move forward. What are the uh, differences in risks that um, they might be willing to take now that uh, maybe they wouldn't have been willing to take a year or two ago? Um, And ultimately, I continue to think it's really, really important to remember that... uh, We need to treat people with respect, even if they've made a a different decision than we have. Again, clearly, there is um, very solid evidence showing the importance of vaccines, and yet there are many different reasons why someone may have chosen to not receive a vaccine. And it will, I think, um, be of most benefit to all of us as communities and as society if we can... Uh, reach across our differences have respectful conversations and try to understand where each other is coming from.
2: Thanks Dr. Inchop. Uh, Stephanie follow-up? If I could direct this to Health Minister Jason Coffing um, just seeing that there have been 90 more people admitted to hospital in non ICU settings um, what is the Health Ministry considering then to support the hospital system in this case what's being considered?
0: Yeah. No. Thanks so much for the question. And, and you know, we understand that uh, a number of hospitals, particularly um, uh, the emergency departments, uh, are under are under strain. Um, you know, working uh, with. Uh, um, with senior executive at uh, an AHS and sort of, you know, asking the plans they're putting in place. I, I understand, like particularly in Calgary, we've seen a strain in a number of hospitals, particularly on the in the emergency departments, of adding additional additional beds to be able to, uh, to manage through that and additional resources, uh, plus, you know, doing work through, um, you know, moving people through the hospital system as quickly and, and, and as, as safe to do so. Um, but we, you know, t- take a step back. You know, we, we know that, you know, our systems, uh, particularly in our big hospitals in the cities, um, are under strain uh, typically this, uh, uh, you know, this time of, this time of year. Um, this is not new. It's and it's it's what's different here today uh, is that we do have uh, we do have COVID. Although when we look at our total numbers, it's not higher than in previous um, previous times uh, when we're under this much much strain. Uh, but we've been, you know, people are tired. Uh, plus, we have people uh, who are working in our facilities who are off sick. Uh, so short-term, you know, adding some initial cap- uh, capacity uh, and then moving people through the quickly through the system as quickly as possible. But medium-term and longer-term, really, it's about adding capacity to our overall system. Uh, and that's what we're doing. Um, you know, $600 million additional bud- to the budget this year, uh, and then we're ramping that for uh, in the next few years. Um, you know, additional capacity for EMS, for continuing care, uh, for acute care, additional $100 million for ICU beds and then being flexible enough so we can use those resources uh, assigned to ICU beds either for surgeries or non-ICU as required. But that's taking time. So we fully appreciate the system is, is under strain right now. Um, AHS is taking actions to be able to reduce that strain to help us get through this wave. But really it's about investing... A more capacity longer term to be able to manage whether it be a COVID wave or a severe flu wave down the future so, you know, people aren't doing the high dives uh, in the sheer amount of overtime uh, in the future.
2: Thanks, Minister. I believe we have two reporters left on the phone. We'll uh, go to the second-last one, please. David Staples, Edmonton Journal. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Um, Dr. Hinshaw, we often hear the phrase COVID is here to stay, And I'm just wondering what this means. For example, in terms of individual health, does it mean we'll all be repeatedly exposed to the COVID virus in coming years and decades?
1: I think the most likely scenario is that uh, we will, as a a population, continue to be exposed to COVID virus. It will uh, likely be more prevalent in the fall and winter months when we typically see respiratory viruses circulate more. Just like influenza has for many, many years. Uh, What we don't know, of course, is the impact that viral evolution will have and how new variants of concern might interact with our population. So there remain unknowns about COVID. Uh, But ultimately, what we have seen, especially with the past couple of waves, is that, again, vaccines are incredibly effective at minimizing severe outcomes. And that as we go forward, we'll need to continue to uh, monitor the evidence about not only the effectiveness of our current vaccines, but whether there are new products that might be able to help us um, with additional um, Protection And uh, whether there's new therapeutics that can also help people with early treatment. So there will continue to be changes and updates to evidence as we go along. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that I think all of us will need to think about if we're in a time where COVID transmission is high, what are our risks and how do we protect ourselves? And then if we're in a time where COVID transmission is low, that may be the time where those who have risk factors are able to do more without adding those layers of protection. So we need to be able to, um, I guess, flex our, uh, our response based on what our current environment is.
2: Thanks, Dr. Hinshaw. A follow-up, David? So, so given that COVID sounds like it's here to stay for, for coming years, what, what safety measures... Um, do you think are also here to stay that will just become kind of staples of our life? Or, or is that something as you suggested that might, might vary over time?
1: I think that it will remain important for all of us to think about how our actions impact other people. So being mindful of how connected we all are, I think is something that I would like to see as being here to stay and so that Includes uh, trying to continue to reinforce a, an expectation or a culture or supports that allow people who are feeling sick to stay home and not uh, have to go to work. Uh, so things like like that, I would hope, will be around for a long time to come. Um, it's difficult to say what would be required in in the future. I think that. Again, what we've seen to date is the population impact has been reduced because we have strong vaccine coverage. And if we're able to maintain that, um, the need to have mandatory measures will be mitigated. Um, For individuals, again, I think that it will change over time. And I, I would recommend that people continue to monitor what that transmission level is like and to use that as one factor in determining what activities they they wish to take. And, of course, that will factor into the recommendations that are provided at a provincial level, um, depending on what variants of concern may emerge, depending on what new treatments may become available. uh, There will continue to be evolving recommendations, uh, again, based on the, the evidence that's available at any moment in time.
2: Thanks, Dr. Inch. I will take one last call, please. Thank you. Bill Kaufman, Post Media. Hi, thanks. Um, this uh, question is for um, Minister Copping. Uh, I'm just wondering, if is the province going to be appealing um, uh, Justice Romaine's decision on um, uh, cabinet confidentiality? And, and what do you think of that decision?
0: Yeah, is, is uh, so uh, my understanding is that the, uh, the decision is being assessed, but it's um, you know, still a live matter, so I, I can't comment further on it.
2: Thanks, Minister. Uh, Bill, follow-up? Uh, yeah, this is a changing gear. This one's for um, uh, uh, Dr. Hinshaw. Um, Dr. Hinshaw, there, there seems to be uh, really a large number of um, outbreaks in uh, long-term care facilities. Um, how much of a concern is that?
1: Facilities where uh, seniors, especially those who have multiple complex medical conditions, are all living together in a single space are, of course, uh, have always been and still are one of the highest risk settings in our community. It's why we have maintained a level of precautions in those settings that is higher than anywhere else right now. It is concerning that uh, we are seeing additional outbreaks. We know that when transmission in the community rises, we tend to see increasing outbreaks in continuing care in other settings. It's um, positive that uh, given the high vaccination rates in those facilities, the uh, case hospitalization rates and case death rates are much lower than they were in previous waves and yet it is still of course very concerning which is part of the reason why over the last two weeks we've been rolling out fourth doses to residents in those settings to ensure that they have that additional layer of protection at this time Uh, and of course continuing to monitor and work with facilities our local public health teams work with facilities to uh, put interventions in place when there is an outbreak to minimize further spread but ultimately the piece that all of us can do to prevent those kinds of severe outcomes especially if if any of us have a loved one who lives in that kind of a setting is to make sure that we're mindful of the rules that are in place that we follow them Uh, and it's particularly important that anyone who's feeling a little bit sick even uh, with mild respiratory symptoms not go into those settings to visit to try to do everything we can to minimize the chance of introducing the virus and causing those outbreaks
2: so uh, thanks dr hinshaw and minister Uh, we'll wrap it up there and see you back here next week